G'day folks, my name is Drew Ray and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. It's getting dark in the evenings, fairy lights are showing and the first advent candle is lit. Outside we have a derailment in New York and a police helicopter falling into a pub. But inside this episode we're going to have an accident-free zone, just this once. There's a brief segment on safety integrity levels, and then an interview with Mike Ellams. First though, I have a request for you. As a safety engineer with a bit of experience from automobiles, helicopters, trains, jets and submarines, when I do pub talks, the form of transport I get asked about most often is bicycles. I'm not a cycling safety expert, but I'm reasonably up to date with the research, and I'm going to treat myself to a refresher survey, just because people expect me to know. And I'd like your help with the questions to ask. What would you like to know about bikes and safety? Are you interested in bikes themselves, or bike paths, or whether bikes are safer than cars? Do you care about helmets, helmet laws, or those weird bicycle airbags that take the place of helmets? Let me know your thoughts at feedback at disastercast.co.uk and I'll do my best to cover it in an episode. Also, if you've got a moment to visit the website or iTunes, you can leave more general feedback. A few people have left topic ideas in the listener survey. I keep a list of these suggestions and draw from them regularly when I'm putting the show together. Speaking of which, let's get on with it. When it comes to achieving safety, one of the key questions is, how much is enough? To protect your feet, you might wear shoes. But are shoes enough? Why not wear boots? Why not wear waterproof boots? Why not wear steel-capped waterproof boots? There will always come a point where the amount of risk you're facing doesn't justify taking further measures to reduce it. Beyond this point, we can receive better return on our safety investment by spending our efforts and money elsewhere. We may even be destroying the benefits we get from something by trying too hard to be safe. When we're designing systems, certain aspects of this safety can be expressed in numbers. This is particularly the case when we're concerned about random failures. Random failures are what we usually think about when we consider a car, train or aircraft breaking down or doing something unsafe. One minute a component is working, then it fails, after which it's no longer working. The term's a little misleading, because random failures are not truly random. Individually, they have physical causes which we could in theory predict with good enough measurements and models, and as groups, they typically occur according to well-defined probability distributions that we can shape through design and maintenance. Still, if we have a safety requirement, we can express the random side of things as a probability. We can say, for example, I need an emergency switch function, and I need it to fail less than once every thousand times it's called upon. We can reduce the likelihood of these random failures by using better components and we can reduce the impact of random failures by building redundancy into our systems. If the chance of one switch failing randomly is 1 in 100, the chance of two switches failing randomly is 1 in 100 times 1 in 100, or 1 in 10,000. Random failures aren't the only type of failures, though. 
If both switches fail at the same time, it might be because of bad luck, or it might be because they had the same design flaw. We call these sorts of failures systematic. Redundancy doesn't help here, because no matter how many switches we have, if they've all got the same design flaw, then under the wrong conditions, they'll all fail at once. Working out how much redundancy we need is something we can determine mathematically. Working out how much protection we need against systematic failures is more nebulous. Software is a good example of this. We never know how many errors there are in a piece of software, because any time we find an error, we fix it. We can reduce the number of errors by putting a lot of effort into finding and fixing them, but this still doesn't help us count them. The question, how safe is safe enough, turns into, how hard do I need to keep looking for systematic failures? This is where the concept of safety integrity levels, SILs, comes in. As well as saying that our switch function needs to fail less than once every thousand times it's used, we need to be equivalently sure that there's no systematic problem causing it to fail more often. We can look at safety integrity levels as either targets or as ways of meeting those targets. Some standards actually use different terms to refer to the two ways of looking at them. They talk, for example, about SALs and SILs. From the target perspective, we set a high SIL when we need to be very confident that a function is going to work. Typically, this will be when a correct function makes the difference between safety and catastrophe. A good example would be when we have a piece of software implementing a function with no hardware protection. We then use the SIL to choose which design and assurance processes to apply. For a high SIL, we use the most rigorous, usually the most expensive processes. For a low SIL, it's not that we use bad processes, but we simply don't apply the full set of tools, techniques and coverages that we have available to us for higher SILs. There's a lot of controversy about the use of SILs, which I won't cover in depth here, but I'll give a few pointers to the key issues. Firstly, the whole idea implies that we know which processes are safer than which other processes, and that the better processes are in fact more expensive. You'll have a lot of trouble getting a room full of complex systems or software experts to agree on this one. What's worse, both sides are typically convinced that they're right, and they're often very hard to convince that we simply don't have enough evidence to make a call. Secondly, the starting point of SILs is often misunderstood. Each target SIL comes from a specific safety requirement, and you design your systems against this requirement. That makes it fairly meaningless to have a SIL4 switch, for example. It's not a SIL4 switch, it's SIL4 against the required function of the particular emergency switching we need it to perform. You could imagine an alternate application where the safety requirement was that it should not switch unless commanded. Our previous SIL4 rating would give us no guarantee at all of this. Thirdly, SILs are a parallel path to safety, not an alternate path. For any safety requirement, you need protection against systematic failures and protection against random failures. 
knowing the sill says nothing about the failure rate, and knowing the failure rate says nothing about the sill. That's probably enough background on sills now to have an informed talk with our guest today about safety functions in cars. At an IET lecture last year, Mike Ellums had his co-author start a fairly bland PowerPoint presentation. He then burst a balloon at the back of the room. He was making a fairly important point about the way we instinctively react to things in support of a very interesting paper, which we're going to be discussing. Mike, could you just start by introducing yourself? Oh, hi, yeah. Basically, I'm a um, computer scientist by formal training. I've got bachelor's degrees in computer science from Canterbury University in New Zealand and a master's degree from the same institution. I've been in the UK for about 20 years. As part of that 20 years, I sort of got a PhD in computer science. Quite a lot of my professional career has been actually programming, but it's always been safety critical systems. I've become an expert in safety critical systems and hence hazard analysis. Physics Ethics 2 has basically just came out a couple of years ago as a published standard and we've been working on an application where we decided to apply that standard rather than 61508. So what the paper was was a deconstruction of part of that standard to try and point out what some of the possible problems with it were and how we chose to try and address those problems. Now, in order to look at the standard, you used a working case study, which was something that I hadn't seen before, but actually appears to be quite an old idea. Yeah, well, what we were working on at the time was an in-wheel electric motor. So, basically, rather than having a centralised powertrain on a vehicle, you know, with an IC engine and a prop shaft and a gearbox going through a differential and driving two wheels, what we have is either two motors on a vehicle or four motors on a vehicle, i.e. one motor each side of the vehicle. So what we have is a distributed powertrain, which is interesting because it brings out a whole new set of problems. For example, if one of the motors fails and the other one doesn't, then you get an asymmetric drive on the vehicle. So this brings in a whole lot of new problems that aren't usually associated with drivetrains because a drivetrain usually either pushes you forward, stops you going forward, or pulls you in the wrong direction. But it's symmetrical, both sides of the vehicle. So the new system actually induces, can actually induce a yaw on the, on the vehicle so that actually it sort of wants to steer to one side or the other in a failure condition. And you're right, um, basically the, the idea of using in-wheel electric motors goes right back to 1900 and Ferdinand Porsche, where he put two electric motors, an enormously heavy battery, and a couple of petrol engines to charge the batteries on a road-going car. So it's not a new idea, it's just an idea that fell out of favour simply because internal, internal combustion engines became the dominant technology for automobiles. So are there performance or safety advantages to using the in-wheel power? There are some safety advantages to using them. For example, you don't have to have a really heavy engine uh, situated directly in front of the driver. If you consider something like the Tesla Model S, basically the front of the car is empty space which can be used for luggage or whatever. So the car itself has an enormous crumple zone. 
much better than most other vehicles. You have far fewer problems dealing with things like the shaft of the steering wheel, for example. So you can actually position that in a way that's perhaps more advantageous to avoiding collision impacts rather than having to try and fit it around sort of as a large block of metal that gets in the way of the front wheels. So there are some safety advantages, but mostly they're associated with how you can package a vehicle. <laughs> the other safety advantage, of course, is if it's an electric motor, then you're probably not carrying petrol, and petrol is enormously flammable. I sort of found out the other day there's something like 168,000 vehicle fires per year in the United States. So while the batteries might be flammable, it's possible they may be less flammable than the standard cars at the moment. So there's some safety advantages. The big advantage is, is the fact that actually you don't have the centralised drivetrain. Um, some of the disadvantages, as I stated before, are the fact that the vehicle can yaw off the road. So when you're making a fairly radical change like that, is it a hard sell to customers that this is going to be something that they'd be happy with and feel safe with? Depends on who you mean by the customer. It's not so much a hard sell to the automotive companies because they know what the advantages are more or less immediately. The big question for them is, can you build it safely? Let's talk a little bit about the challenges in demonstrating that a new system like this is safe. In order to set safety targets, we need to understand what can go wrong if this particular new a component or one of its functions fails. And normally we'd do that by thinking about how bad the outcomes could be, how likely the outcomes are once the hazards occurred. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you measure how bad a hazard is on a vehicle? There are two components to this. First up there is the task of determining what the failures can be. And the associated task with that is of working out what the effect of those failures would be on the vehicle. For example, if your brakes fail, then the failure is obvious. The vehicle won't slow down. And at a high level for an in-wheel motor, you have the same standard set of failures that you would have for a brake system and a drive system. So if you're using regenerative braking, then the wheel motors are acting as part of the brake system. So you can adopt all the failures from there. If it's a dry, acting as a drivetrain, then you have all the failures associated with things like wide open throttle and lack of throttle response. So you get failures like unintended acceleration. In addition to that, because it's a distributed system, you have to consider what the effects on the vehicle would be in that asymmetrical mode, and which is, as I said, mentioned before, is basically it can cause the vehicle to swing to one side or the other. So that's the first part of the problem. That's working out, enumerating what hazards can be associated with the vehicle. Working out how severe those um, hazards can be is quite a different proposition. Um, ISO 262 has introduced a methodology for working out how hazardous a particular failure may be on the road. Um, and to do this, what they've done is they've defined their own version of the safety integrity levels as automotive safety integrity levels, and they consider three inputs into that. They consider the severity of any accident that may occur if an accident occurs. They consider the exposure of the vehicle on the roadway 
So if you spend a lot of time driving on the freeways, for example, that exposure would have a high exposure rating. And they consider, and this is what I'm most interested in, is the controllability, i.e. what ability people involved in the accident might have to mitigate the accident. So they're explicitly taking into account the human factors here because of the basic assumption that the driver is always in control of the vehicle. So what they're asking is, if something goes wrong, then how likely is it for the driver to be able to mitigate that, either avoiding the accident or making it less severe? And in addition, what actions can other people that are also on the roadway also take to avoid the accident? For example, um, if a car suddenly veers out of its lane, then do other drivers have the possibility of avoiding the accident? For example, they could brake or they could try and steer out of the way. That said, we identified a number of issues with some of these things that go in here. For example, on the severity rating, it's almost uniquely defined by how fast the vehicles are travelling at the time and the geometry of the accident. And it doesn't actually have a formal definition of the standard. What it does is it has definition by example and it gives, states that you, know, you should be able to work out what severity is by looking at road traffic accident statistics. Um, and it turns out that that's actually rather a large job. The exposure parameter that goes into this um, has a similar set of problems in that you have to make assumptions about where people drive and what sort of actions they're going to be taken. And part of the other problem with these two parameters is the fact that for any given vehicle, for any given set of vehicles, for example passenger cars, then the severity and the exposure are more or less fixed. So there's not a lot a vehicle engineer can do to change these. A road engineer could perhaps change the exposure or the severity by putting in, for example, medium barriers on a, on a motorway. Um, so you, it's very unlikely you get head-on collisions, um, which are particularly bad. But there's not a lot a vehicle engineer can do. So we've determined that actually where engineers can put most of the effort is working out how controllable for the persons involved the failure would be. So if, for example, I was designing a four-door medium sedan, the severity and exposure for the accidents would be the same regardless of what my sedan looked like. Really, all that would be within my scope to actually engineer would be how controllable the various failure modes were. That's correct. Some sedans will be more safe than other sedans, but, you know, the fact of life is that if you're on a freeway and you have a head-on with the HGV coming in an opposite direction, you're very unlikely to survive, no matter how well the sedan is designed. I mean, there are special purpose vehicles that can increase your probability of survival, but most people don't want to drive around in cars equipped with full rallying road cages. And to survive that sort of accident, that's the sort of modifications you would need to a standard car. So, yes, you're right. The only thing, as an engineer, I have control of is how controllable the result of the failure mode is. Let's zoom in on that one, then. How do you work out how 
controllable or not controllable it is, for example, if you've got asymmetric drive on two wheels? Um, this was quite a significant problem. It involves several aspects. It involves quantifying how much you're you can expect to get on a vehicle for a given level of failure. For example, if you have a a yaw or a torque asymmetry across the vehicle, say of 2%, um, odds are that no driver is even going to notice that. For example, if you look at the standards for um, vehicle inspections at a MOT station, you're allowed an asymmetry on the braking system of around 25%. The assumption is that most drivers will be able to cope with the yaw induced by that and be able to keep the vehicle going in a straight line. It's not sure whether that's correct, but that's what the standard asks for. You've got the second part of the problem is what can drivers actually do? And that's actually turned out to be the most difficult part of the problem, was trying to quantify what a driver would, in general, find acceptable. And what we did was we actually had, did a lot of a, a big literature search to go through the published literature to find a driver study that looked at this. And there were actually, there were actually two of them performed by the, the same researcher. And what they did was they took new vehicles that had electrically controlled power steering and got drivers to drive on a test track and put errors in on the steering wheel on the steering system, so basically the car would pull to one side or the other um, and got drivers to rate them. And this is the first area of research that we found that actually would put a your rate limit on how much your driver thought was tolerable. The second area of work we found was a lot of work on wind gust studies, i.e. what do drivers do when a wind gust hits a vehicle. And this was quite encouraging because it seemed to indicate that once you've got a certain amount of experience, most drivers compensate more or less automatically for a wind gust. So you don't think, oh, I'm leaving my lane, I need to steer back. In, in reality, drivers adjust the steering of the vehicle based on what their other senses are telling them. So from this, we can assume, we, we get the information of how much your might be tolerable and whether it's a, or, and more importantly, We've got the idea that it's a reaction that we can count on as being something that almost everybody would do. There's a subtle distinction there. In one case, you're talking about what drivers can handle. On the other hand, you're talking about what drivers will actually do. That's right. And it's very important because it's probably very easy to sit down and do a hazard analysis and say, well, in this situation, the drivers will always break. That's obvious. But it isn't actually always obvious because drivers are human beings and human beings tend to do what they're used to. Drivers don't have a lot of options for thinking about what the mitigations might be. So if you're relying on a driver to sit there calmly thinking, well, I'm sort of charging down off the road and just think, well, you know, what action should I take? Um, it's probable they're actually going to be off the road before they get the conscious thinking part of the actions done. So you're wanting to, if possible, rely on instinctive reactions. You know, the vehicle gets hit by a wind gust, you adjust the steering. It's just something you do, and then you think about it afterwards, saying, ooh, that was a big one. Um, but you've already done the correction if you've stayed on the road. 
So th this was a very important distinction that we came up with, that sort of you have to have a very good idea of what mental model the driver works in, and if possible, avoid having them actually have to cognate to find a solution. It sounds like you're talking about more there than just working out how severe the accident is. You're actually talking about designing it so that it fails in a particular way that the driver can handle instead of a way that the driver can't handle. That, that's perfectly correct. Um, if you design this in a way and you make the assumption that, well, the driver will be able to handle this by doing this set of complicated actions, the probability that the driver will have ever thought about this set of complicated actions beforehand or will be able to think about it while the accident is in progress is probably zero. So basically, if you design something and count on the driver being able to control it, then you have to have a pretty good idea of what the driver will actually do in a particular circumstance. A good counterexample to this is the idea that of emergency braking with the rapidly flashing lights. I was driving around the N25 one night and um, a boy racer in a um, Volkswagen Golf charged up beside me, pulled directly in front of me and did an emergency brake. Um, and his light, his amber lights at the rear flashed wildly for a couple of seconds. And my reaction was to sit there, stunned, thinking about what's happening. It took a couple of moments for me to actually think, oh, God, he's braking, and for me to actually put on the brake. And his brake lights came on at the same time, but I found that the flashing amber lights were so distracting that I didn't immediately brake. For example, braking in response to brake lights going on is considered to be a normal response because it's something we learn, we do it so often, that it becomes ingrained in our subconscious. So basically we see a break, we see a red light go on in front of us and we break. The flashing lights in front of it um, completely distracted me and added an extra fact in there. Where they're having flashing lights like that, at least initially, is going to improve road, road safety is perhaps a moot point. Once people get used to it though, Everybody will see the, the amber flashing lights and basically they'll say, oh, emergency brake, they'll just react. They won't have to cognate about it anymore. Requiring a response that requires people to think about the solution is suboptimal. There's obviously a lot of thought and effort that needs to go into designing both the components so that the failure rates are acceptable and then the behaviour of the components in cases of failure or cases of unusual operation. How often do accidents actually come down to the design of the car and failures of the car as compared to simply the users making mistakes without any sort of failure? Most accidents, 98% of them, have, there are no failures on the vehicle whatsoever. It's just the driver losing control of the vehicle. As a friend of mine who who does a lot of work in this area, says drivers are perfectly capable of falling off the road by themselves. Of the remaining 2% of accidents, almost all failures are due to failures of either the brake system or the tyres, usually due to improper maintenance. So, for example, if someone runs worn-out tyres, um, and tyres are possibly the most dangerous, single dangerous component on the car, um, simply because people don't think about them that much, you know, but if you get a, a rear tyre blowout, it's very unlikely that you're not going to be involved in a major accident, um, simply because the vehicle is 
impossible to control for a human and difficult to control for electronic stability systems. ESP is designed to control a tyre blowout, but if you're travelling fast enough and the the blowout is severe enough, then ESP is going to have its work cut out, keeping you going in a straight line. So the vast majority of accidents are, are just due to the fact that people don't maintain their brakes, people don't maintain their tyres. I, I gather you're a driver yourself, despite your intimate knowledge of cars. Um, how do you feel about all the new technology that's becoming available? I wouldn't buy a car that didn't have ABS. <laughs> um, I used to have a car that didn't have ABS. It was a Volvo 740, um, and I actually got quite good at putting it back in a straight line. It was something that I had to be able to do because if there was a frost on the road and there were certain corners I went round and if I was just a little bit heavy on the throttle, the vehicle would go sideways. ABS is one of those things that, you know, is almost a no-brainer. You know, you, you, you wouldn't go out and get a vehicle without ABS these days, in my opinion. In general, um, being involved in the automotive industry for 20-odd years, I think that, in general, that automotive companies try quite hard to make their vehicles safe. It's not possible, um, but for long-established systems like ABS, ESP, you know, they do improve the safety. I mean, Mercedes-Benz estimated that ESP reduces the number of accidents on the road by about one-third. So there's a significant benefit in having vehicles equipped with these. When it comes to more advanced systems, um, so like self-drive Um, what you have to consider is how bad drivers actually are. When I'm driving with my kids, quite often you you get very distracted because the kids are hitting each other with with their toys or whatever they've got in the back of the car, um, and there's a fight going on. It's a very distracting thing. An automated system won't be distracted. So automated systems will, to a certain extent, remove some of the problems of having a driver in control because drivers are human and humans are fallible. You know, automated systems won't follow too closely behind the car in front, which is something that, you know, if you look out on your average motorway, you know, some of the cars are only two or three car lengths away from each other. This doesn't even give you enough time to react to a brake light before you've actually collided with the vehicle in front. In general, you know, I don't think automated cars are going to be seen in large numbers on the road in the next decade. You know, technology in cars tends to change reasonably slowly, um, which is probably a good thing um, considering the potential for damage that can be done. Michael Lums, thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for the call. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Remember to send in any questions or comments you have about bicycle safety to feedback at disastercast.co.uk. If you've got a moment to mention the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, Quora, or your favourite mailing list, that would be very kind of you. A big thank you to George and Rich for recent topic ideas, and to Mike Ellums for volunteering to be on the show. If you're listening to this shortly after release, the next episode will be out on December 17th.